Siona Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, they do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. Many of us were stuck indoors during the course of the pandemic, and sadly, that led to a rise in domestic violence against women and even a femicide. We all like to think that if we were the ones stuck in an abusive or toxic relationship, we could easily identify it and get out. But you know what? That just isn't the case for many adults and many individuals. Neka McGregor is the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Shelter for Social Justice and will help us to understand why it can be so hard for people to get out of an abusive relationship and how to move back on with their lives after. And we're coming up to the most depressing day of the year, apparently Blue Monday, third Monday in January. That might might have uh, started as a marketing employee for travel agency, but quickly picked up steam for good reason. January can be a long, cold, and tough month for many people. That's why we got the Senior Vice President of Research and Total Wellbeing at LifeWorks, our friend Paula Allen, to come out with us and give us some tips and advice on how to make this Blue Monday easier on yourself and discuss if workplaces should be doing more to help make the bluest day of the year easier for their employees. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. I want to kick off the show uh, talking about uh, birthdays, right? Is it something that you add up or you count them down? Something you look forward to or something you'd rather not have, you know, have kind of take place every year? Sort of, I don't want to talk about it. It's not really my birthday. It's not a big deal. We don't really have to have a celebration. Don't want a celebration. Or, you know, you celebrate it as a sign of accomplishment, as something really, you know, special. I mean, I'm kind of one of those that looks at it as a special kind of thing, as opposed to counting them down, waiting for life to end. I'm waiting for the next day to begin. I don't know how you feel, right? You can text me right now or give us a call, 877-399-9898. I'm here with my buddy, Leo, and uh, we're doing what we can to uh, make a difference in your lives tonight. So give Leo a call or text us and uh, we'll uh, respond to you as quickly as we can or get you on the line here with us. You know, I'm, I, I won't tell you my age, but I'm at the stage of my life where I'm starting to contemplate how much is left. Not so much in terms of fear and anxiety, uh, but in terms of what I can look forward to and planning, you know, the things I want to do and, you know, what uh, what it looks like for me to slow down, maybe do something uh, kind of a partial retirement type of thing at some point in my life, kind of looking at it, trying to figure out, you know, what's the best thing for me? What works best for me? What's going to be the best solution for me? How am I going to live my life? You know, my mom, she passed recently this year. Uh, she was 95. My father, thankfully, is 96 and still uh, quite healthy and kicking and working hard and, you know, out volunteering uh, six days a week. And, you know, for the most part, doing okay, especially for a guy who lost his uh, his uh, partner of 75 years. Yeah, they did 75 years together. But, you know, he, he kind of kept working and kept doing stuff with people. And, you know, he had a plan to do more stuff in terms of volunteerism and, and kind of more stuff for the community. And that's what keeps him going every day. And the days that he's not able to get up because his legs are sore, he's just not feeling great. And he has those days, right? He just doesn't go to work that day. And, um, you know, they're not the same days. The days he gets up to do stuff, uh, plans for stuff, you know, we plan parties, we plan celebrations. He looks forward to the dinners that we have here weekly with my children and grandchildren and and him and my brother. And, you know, we, we, it's, it's really something uh, special for him to look forward to. So, you know, I, I believe that I have it in my genes anyway, if I don't do stupid things to, to myself, um, I have it in my genes to live into my nineties. So that gives me without, uh, without talking about my age, it gives me a, a big chunk of life still ahead, right? Probably 30 years or so. So I'm contemplating what that's going to look like. And, and I'm, I, I'm thinking about it with, with a great amount of enjoyment and thinking about the cool things I'm going to be able to do and hopefully the things I'm going to be able to, to attend as my grandchildren get older, as my kids uh, reach certain milestones in their lives and things that I can do with my wife and, and stuff that we're able to share and do together and continue to enjoy our lives together. Right. So for me, it's I add them up. It's, it's something I look forward to. But for some people, they count birthdays down. They don't really look forward to it. Well, let me tell you, there's an article out that says that the, the 65 became the new 25. Well, maybe not exactly. 
But 65 for some certainly feels like 50, right? For a lot of people who are still vibrant, still working, still active, still involved in the things that they do all the time. You know, their 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 groups, their friends. They plan. People plan their lives around where they are in their lives, right? Navigating one's 20s and one's 60s, it turns out, are remarkably similar. There's so many decisions at both ends of the spectrum, you know, where to live, you know, what to let go of, right? Uh, what to hold on to, how, you know, and how or whether to work, where to work, what kind of work to do. Decision-making improves with older brain, they say, according to John Hopkins' study, along with empathy and perception. But the decision matter like never before. The decisions matter like never before because the decisions you make at later on in life don't have a lot of redos, right? You make certain decisions, make certain take, make certain choices in your 20s, 30s, even 40s, perhaps even 50s. You don't get a lot of do-overs and not a lot of, not a, not a lot of time for do-overs. I don't mean time in terms of running out of time, but at that stage of your life, one should have some pretty good idea of where they want to be. And if not, it's a good time to look at yourself. I mean, it's always a good time to look at yourself and figure out what you want to be when you grow up, right? I mean, just sitting around, just talking about it, just thinking about what life looks like and the choices. Oh, man, the choices I made at 20 or 30. Oh, my gosh. If I had them to make them again, I'm not sure I'd make the same ones. However, I think the ones I made got to me, got kind of got me to where I am today kind of gave me whatever it is I've got, good, bad, or indifferent. Gives me skills, gives me experience, gives me the ability to draw back on lots of stories, lots of situations, you know. I had a, had a fellow not so long ago call me and uh, be, was interested in getting help around uh, an alcohol and, uh, and uh, sleep, sleep pill dependency, sleep medication dependency. And we talked about it. And the man was in his late 50s, early 60s. And he said to me, so what's it really matter? He says, you know, I don't have that much time left. So, you know, I take a few years off my life by drinking and, uh, and uh, using uh, medication in a way I shouldn't. I said to him, you know what? That's certainly a way to look at it. But if I could tell you, you had 20 good years ahead of you still, at least, let's say 25, 75, not so hard to get to today with good, you know, taking good care of yourself, eating well, sleeping well. I mean, if you can dodge the bullet of horrible diseases that you kind of just roll the dice and hope you don't get them, right? And I, and I said to him, you know, life is certainly worth living if you have something to live for. And we started to talk about what he had in his family, what he had going on in his life, and the mistakes that he had made throughout the years as a result of making bad choices, primarily around drinking too much under such, you know, situations at kids' graduations, at his daughter's wedding, like, you know, horrible stories that, you know, you can only, you know, take your, your, your heart out, you know, let your heart out to the guy and just say, I feel bad for you, but, right? And, and I said, you know, what, what if he could use that time to go back and fix it? What if he could use that time to go back and just redo some of those situations? Maybe not make those days happen again, but somehow go back and make up for that time. It's impossible to undo what has been done, but you can certainly make amends and do things going forward to help uh, in, in recapturing those opportunities. And, you know, over time we did some therapy together and he realized that he had really a ton of stuff to live for and that, you know, really the alcohol was, you know, uh, a, a self-medication um, device for him to get around some of the ugly stuff we discovered in therapy around his upbringing and the trauma he had as a kid and so on. You know, not that there are legitimate reasons to drink and make bad choices, but when you start looking at your life and thinking about going forward and you can rid yourself of some of that baggage, it makes going forward so much easier. And there's ways that we can push back that quarter-life crisis, right? There's ways to move past it. There are ways to put yourself in a position where as you think of your life going forward, you think of it in a positive way. You think of it in a way that makes you feel good about the opportunities, not fearful of them. And the way you get there is by dealing with where you are today in a real way and perhaps letting go of the baggage from behind, you know, from the years before, all that anger, some of the resentment, right? some of the stuff around guilt. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to talk about going forward here. That's the kind of stuff we should be ch channeling and sharing and figuring out how we can actually get to the next stages of our life and do it in a healthy way, in a way that we feel good about ourselves. When you stay in a toxic relationship too long and it starts to have an impact on the way that you view the world, all of a sudden it changes and excuse your, your view of the world where you see everything negatively.
Well, there you go. It, uh, we're trying to talk about here this evening. Welcome to the show. Um, we're talking about reasons why it's hard to move on from an abusive relationship. And it's, you know, there's lots of things that make relationships abusive. Lots of that. I like to use the word toxic, right? Um, if you're in a situation, in a relationship that uh, basically you just don't feel, make, doesn't make you feel good about yourself, uh, actually makes you feel bad about yourself. Over time, you really start to question yourself and question your thoughts and your and what you think is wrong and 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 kind of being gaslit. We did a show a couple about a month or so ago about being about gaslighting, how people can really, you know, take advantage of you in ways, especially people close to us, right? People that are very close to us take advantage of us in ways, manipulate us in ways, and next thing you know, we're you know months, maybe years into a really abusive relationship. And the dynamics make it very hard to move on. You're in a position of control where the other person has such control over you and they're, they're constantly criticizing you and, and, and persuading you to do things and, and, and manipulating you emotionally, threats and raging, uh, making you feel guilty, making you feel bad, like it's your fault, right? Had a woman once in my practice not so long ago, actually, who uh, we did some uh, trauma work with. And uh, she drank a lot to get past her trauma. So we worked on that as well, get her sober. And uh, part of the you know problem was for a long time, she kept telling me that, you know, he came, he came home from work and I just didn't have dinner ready. Um, and, he, you know, I, normally I have it ready, but I couldn't that day because I wasn't feeling well. And, you know, it, it, I, then I understand why he was angry, why he was throwing things and he threw the dinner on the floor. It was my fault. Well, no. No, not at all. It's not your fault. It's never your fault. When someone abuses you or treats you poorly, it's on them. It's not on you. Have a guest with me this evening. Her name is Necka McGregor. She's the co-founder and executive director of Women's Center for Social Justice and the co-host of the podcast, What's Your Safe Word? Necka, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so very much for having me on. Thank you. I really wish we didn't have to constantly have these types of conversations. It seems to be once every month, month and a half, I have some form of segment, some show to do about toxic relationships, women being you know abused or treated poorly, or young children being abused or treated poorly. And I guess what people don't understand is, you know, if you're in a relationship uh, and you're in a marital relationship or some form of cohabitated relationship where there's children involved, likely the person who's making you feel bad about you is also doing it to the kids. Am I, is that right or wrong? What do you think? I think you're very spot on. I think that is uh, oftentimes the situation that arises. And the person that is doing the abusing um, generally doesn't sort of stop at one person, at one, one member of the family. It generally translates to everybody else in, in, in the family. So you're right when you say the target is not always their intimate partner. It often bleeds out to the children, to other relatives. Yeah, I think I think if someone is, you know, toxic by nature, so to speak, I think they're toxic mm-hmm. by nature whenever the, you know, the time comes for them to act like that. And it's usually when they're obviously at their worst or perhaps at their most vulnerable as well, right? Um, how does one, uh, Neka, how does one um, identify if their relationship is toxic or abusive? How, how do you know you're in a bad relationship? That's a great question. I just want to take a step back, actually, and talk about how people, I don't think people are born toxic. I don't think people um, sort of fall, you know, it's not a genetic issue. It's it's a learned behavior. I, I agree 100%. Just so we are on the same page, I believe that bullies are one-time bullied. So uh, exactly. We're, exactly. We're, we're exactly on the same page. Thanks for clarifying it. Uh, but to, get to, my, to, my, to my point, though, um, with respect, how, how does one um, know? I mean, how do you know it's just not you? And how do, you, how do you just know that it's, you know, you're in a bad relationship and it's not like it is with everyone else? Yeah, I think people intuitively know. I think we often feel it right you know something isn't right but we tend to find ways to sort of uh, convince ourselves otherwise we convince ourselves that you know it's a one-off it'll change if i if i did something differently better the example you gave at the beginning was you know she didn't have the the dinner on time uh, on the table on time the reality is it could be anything that sets an individual yeah. off it doesn't have yeah. to be the dinner i had a, a one of our members talked once about she, she called it, it it was it it wasn't burnt toast it was just hot bread right anything the, the toast wasn't brown it wasn't burnt it was just hot it, he didn't need a reason he didn't need any excuse in order to sort of lash out 
And I really love the way you, you started it talking about power and control, because that's what it really boils down to. One individual yeah. wants to exert their power and control over somebody else. And then they use whatever means that they have at their disposal, whether it's a threat, it's um, you know coercion, it's intimidation, it's verbal, it's emotional, psychological. They use that as a means to oppress and suppress the other party into submission. You know, people say to me all the time, uh, you know, when I'm talking to them about a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship, um, you know, I, 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 we talk about, you know, they'll say to me, well, you know, it's not like he ever hit me. It's not like she ever hit me. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, their words. It was just their words. This made me feel horrible and I felt terrible at the end. Um, the difference between the relationship, if it's emotional or physical, um, my gut feeling is, is the emotional stuff is much harder to cure. Your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I, I've, I've gotten into the, these conversations before where it's like a, a, an abuse Olympics, right? Where people yeah. are trying to compare which one is worse. I say they're all bad. I say yeah, they're I all bad. I have never met, however, um, a woman who has experienced physical violence who didn't you know, experience the myriad of others, the verbal, the emotional, the sexual, etc. I've I've met survivors who've experienced verbal um, and emotional abuse but were not physically hit but I've never met a survivor who was physically hit and didn't experience all the other other types. But the reality is that regardless of what type of abuse you're experiencing, the trauma that it leaves behind is impactful on the individual, right? And so sitting and trying to compare whose scars are bigger, whose scars are worse, I think is, you know, we, we sort of we lose sight of the issue, which is around how do we stop the violence? How do we stop the abuse from happening in the first place? And oftentimes, I, I know you'd, you'd asked a question earlier around um, why people stay, right? If you're feeling it, why, why do people stay in these relationships? I, I think we shouldn't be asking why do they stay. We should be asking why uh, the, is the partner being violent? Why is yeah, he hitting? Yeah. Why is he you know, violating as opposed to why doesn't she leave? There are a myriad, a myriad, plethora of reasons why women stay. Um, and it, you know, includes children. If you have children, uh, how do you how do you pack up and take your kids and start all yeah. over again? That's yeah. very very difficult. Oftentimes, there's financial abuse as well, where the finances are so intimately intertwined that to extricate yourself and start again, find a, a, um, accommodation, find a new job in a new a new city, it's very 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 difficult, very challenging. And oftentimes women love the, per- the person, right? So yeah, yeah. when you are in love with somebody, it isn't so simple as to say, well, you know, I can just get up and leave. It's very, very complex and very complicated. And when people sort of reduce it to just pack up and go, why can't you pack up and go? You're not facing the realities, the really, really difficult challenges that women have to go through. And I also so- want to... I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to say, we talk about women and men, right? And I, 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 I talk about this as a gendered issue, that it is oftentimes um, the victims of the violence, the targets of the violence are oftentimes women, and the aggressors are oftentimes men. Yes, women can be abusive and violent to their, their male partners, but we, the work that we do is overwhelmingly a gendered issue. It's overwhelmingly men who are mm-hmm. the, the aggressors and the ones who are using the violence against their, their, their partners. The man who I loved more than anybody on earth held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me more times than I can even remember. A psychological trap disguised as love, one that millions of women and even a few men fall into every year. It may even be your story. Thank you. And welcome back. Uh, I'm, uh, we're talking tonight about abusive relationships and uh, being in a toxic relationship. Uh, my guest this evening is Nekka McGregor. Uh, she is the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Center for Social Justice and the co-host of an excellent podcast called What's Your mm-hmm. Safe Word? Uh, Nekka, I want to come back uh, to something we sort of started, uh, left, uh, I think, a little bit on the, on the wrong note together here. Um, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that you understand that I'm with you in terms of oh, okay. the blame needs to fall on the abuser. 
the question isn't, you know, why doesn't she get out or why don't they get out? Um, the, the global question, the overall question is, you know, what's causing it? Where, you know, where is it coming from? And mm-hmm. to what extent is the abuser, um, you know, getting, uh, you know, punishment or whatever. But the, the real question has to also be around if you find yourself in a situation like this, um, how do you get out? So, you know, when you're talking about being in love and, and, and that being kind of a something that holds you there and the kids and so on, I, I get all that. I know you get all that. I think the majority of my listeners um, get it. We, we understand it. We've heard enough stories. We've seen enough TV shows and movies depicting mm-hmm. this horrible uh, relationship uh, breakdown. But when someone's in a situation like that, help us understand how they can get out of it, assuming they have kids, assuming that money's difficult. Is there a chance to escape or not? Absolutely, there's there's a chance to escape. And the reason why I, I started off the way I did was because, honestly, Yona, a lot of, of the community still doesn't understand the complexities because these this issue is something that's happened in secret, right? It's it's behind closed yeah. doors, and yeah. it's not talked about. But yeah. the message is that there's hope, right? There are there are ways to get out and to get out safely. Um, I want to sort of highlight the the myriad of supports that um, exists, right? There are shelters, and with all the the challenges that that, that exist within shelters, because there's not enough beds, not enough spaces, but there are opportunities for women who are in urgent and immediate danger to find supports because there are shelters um, across Canada. There are also um, organizations, right? There are helplines that women can call and uh, there are services that are available across the provinces and the territories in Canada. The biggest challenge, though, is understanding sort of the the safety plan, putting in, in, in place a yeah. safety plan that's actually yeah. going to help you get out and stay safe once you're out. One of the right. reasons why women don't leave is because that point of, of separation is the most dangerous point in a woman's life. When women leave, women who are murdered by their intimate partners, most often it's within six to nine, six to 12 months of, of leaving. So the point wow. of separation is a very, very dangerous time, which is why when I say to people, stop telling women, just leave, because yeah. you, you, what you're actually doing is placing Putting them in harm's way. Exactly, exactly. So just leave without a safety plan is, is a bad idea. It's not, it's not so good. Where, good. Okay, mm-hmm. I, 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 we just have so much. To, uh, this is such a subject that I think you're 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 so compassionate and and you're giving such great advice. It's wonderful, and I thank you for it. Um, you. So, where do you get that? Where do you, where does someone get that? Uh, we're played across Canada here. We're you know in, in every province um, from you know, Ontario east or west for mm-hmm. sure. Um, what? How do? Where do people go? to learn about that safety plan? Is this a police thing or is this an organization like, like yours, like the Women's Center for Social Justice? Mm-hmm. Um, where do people go to learn what that safety plan should look like and get the help that's needed, even picking someone to pick them up and take them to where they need to go? How does that start from, you know, how does that go from start to finish sort of? Yeah, that, that's a great question, right? Because oftentimes, what, what do you do, right? Do you Google? Yeah. <laughs> do you enter yeah. a search uh, yeah. um, how do I how do I find help if it's in an abusive relationship? You, there are you can enter that into a Google search, and there will be depending on where you live, there'll be a, a list of organisations that will show up. Um, calling the police is something that again I I'm very leery, leery about of, advising yeah, that. Yeah, because yeah, again, yeah. police are not always the best option, right? And also depending on sort of the cultural um, nuances of, of the relationship. So black women, yep. indigenous yep. women, don't necessarily feel safe to call police, right? right. But there are, there are um, hotlines, there are safety lines, there are organizations that can conduct, women's centers, women's shelters that can conduct safety planning um, with individuals. And a safety plan is really a, a strategic plan that you develop that will um, itemize sort of the, the documents you need to put aside so in the case of emergency, you can get out quickly and safely and still have access to things like your passport, um, bank cards, et cetera, et cetera. So there are, the hope is that there are lots and lots and lots of organizations out there. The challenge, though, you know, is getting is, to them. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and also yeah. the, the fact that a lot of these organizations are underfunded, severely underfunded, and the need is so great, the personnel is overworked, right? So the, the, the challenge is so huge, but the, the help is there. The help is there. And I can say that because I know I was there. I, I, I lived it myself. And I know what my organization and other organizations in the gender-based violence sector are doing is proactively trying to find solutions and um, avenues. There goes the cat and the dog in sight. Um, solutions and avenues to support women. So you lived this yourself? I did. I did. I'm, I'm a survivor, which is why the organization does what, what it does. It's an organization by and for survivors. Hold on. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't <laughs> apologize. We, we love animals and little children anytime. There we go. So I'm glad it's all, you said it's, that. All, it's all good. It gives us life and something to smile about. Um, exactly. You know, I, I, are you comfortable? We only got a little bit of time, but are you comfortable talking a little bit about your own situation or would you rather move on to something else? It's fine. I mean, I, I speak about this because I want okay. women to know that there is hope, right? That there is, there are, there, there is, uh, um, there's life after violence. There's life after abuse. So you know, it's I, interesting I that it, it. it's interesting. I have young people in my practice that are uh, from uh, forms of uh, violence and, uh, um, you know, uh, being uh, sexually abused at a young age and trafficked mm -hmm. and so on. And, and one of the ways we help get past being a victim is by being an advocate and learning exactly. how to help others and speaking up for yourself. So clearly this is great for you. And clearly this is a great help to so many that you touch. Um, were you in a relationship for very long um, before you got out? I was in a relationship for 19 years before oh I got out. Goodness. I know, I know. It was well, a long time. And what, what, was the, what, was the, what was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak? Uh, I was turning 40, and I realized that there was nothing else I could do um, to help this person you know, not be violent. There was, I, I didn't have the right. skills, I didn't have the training, I didn't have the resources in order to help them. And it really wasn't my responsibility to help them. You couldn't fix them. Exactly. I could, I couldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't my, my role to it's fix. It's not your job. It's not, clearly exactly. not your job, yeah. right? Yeah. So when I, I realized, and I, and we had three young children together and I have a son and two daughters and realizing that I, I did not want my son to think that that is the way men are supposed to be in the world. And I didn't want my daughters to think that this is the way women are supposed to be treated. And getting up and going, and getting up and going, I'm, I'm living in Canada, I'm originally from the UK, but originally Nigerian, but living in, in, in Canada without any relatives, without any family support was very, very difficult. But again, it was a, a determination that I was not going to sort of let somebody else di dictate the rest of my life. And again, going back to this, um, the safety planning, is figuring out a way that you do it as seamlessly as possible and as safely as possible. Because I didn't want to um, increase the risk to my life or that of my exactly. children. So. Yeah, and, and your point about advocacy, advocacy and activism is really what, what saved my life. Because yeah, I no started kidding. speaking, I started getting involved in figuring out ways to get the system to change and to get the system to hold abusers accountable. Well, you know what? I can tell you that uh, I am so happy to have met you and to know you, mm -hmm. and we'd love to have you come back uh, again when we have to continue to have this conversation until things get My better. Pleasure. I'm talking with uh, Mecca McGregor, uh, just a wonderful guest and a real advocate and someone who's out there trying to make a difference. You can catch her on her uh, on her uh, podcast, uh, What's Your Safe Word? Uh, really good listen. Uh, we'll be thank right you. back with some other stuff. Mecca, thank you so much for being here with us. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain, but it's just a motto, and it doesn't really hold. There's a lot of complaining and a lot of explaining. Endless. Private being done in through leaks. Through leaks, they will feed or have a conversation with the correspondent, and that correspondent will literally be spoon-fed information and write the story. And then the bottom of it, they will say that they've reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment, mm. but the whole story is Buckingham Palace commenting. 
Well, there you go. That's uh, Prince Harry talking about um, his book and his life as a royal. And, you know, I've been doing a bunch of research. I've been listening to uh, different uh, talk shows. I've been uh, talking to my wife who's reading the book, uh, Spare, which uh, she just got recently and uh, hasn't been able to put it down. And I come away from it maybe a little different than others. I, I don't know. Maybe you come away from it the same way. If you agree with me, give me a call here, 877-399-9898. Love to hear from you. Or you can text us. Same difference. We'll get your message and uh, use it and uh, respond to it in some way if it's helpful. <clears throat> but you know what? Here's a kid. Here's a guy. Not a kid, but he was a kid. Here's a guy uh, who grew up in a an environment. So imagine for a second, forget that it's the royal family. Let's take a wealthy family in Canada. We'll call them the Smiths, right? Well, the Smith family, wealthy, dynamic, uh, big dynasty. And, you know, if you know a family like that or know of people like that in your community, you know, the kind of the wealthy people in the town and so on, they keep their stuff to themselves, right? They keep them stuff to themselves and they don't really share a lot of information. And when their kids aren't feeling great about stuff, they keep it locked down because I sometimes get those people as patients, as clients who are, who are trying to survive something terrible and everyone tells them to suck it up buttercup. So what I'm learning from this story, what I'm learning from these, this, this whole, I guess, coming out, if you will, for Harry and Megan specifically for Harry. Megan's a different conversation perhaps in a minute. But what I'm looking, hearing from Harry is here's a kid whose mother was taken from him and in a horrible way and had fears of that kind of life his whole life, blaming the media, blaming exposure, the pressure to be, you know, to smile on days when you just can't because you're, you know, a royal. And the post-traumatic stress that he must suffer and must have suffered as a young child whose mother was taken from him in such a horrible way and in such a public way. And then to have her life dragged through the mud and shared in the media, the, the British media in such a way that she was the bad one. She almost brought it on herself. Shame on them all. Shame on them all. And when you read stories and you understand what Harry's talking about, he feared that for himself. And you know what? One of the things we tell people in treatment and therapy, especially traumatic stress therapy, we talk to them about writing letters to their abusers, writing letters to the situation, somehow getting it off their chest so they don't carry it around. It's, it's cathartic to take a pen and a piece of paper, not a computer key keyboard, a pen and a piece of paper and write, dear, dear media, you ruined our lives. You did this or dear dad or dear mom, I miss you or you know, whatever. There's so many ways to use pen and paper as a means by which to deal with some of your trauma and some of the feelings that you carry around inside you, the baggage, if you will. That's what we like to call it baggage because it's so heavy after you carry it long enough. But looking at this young man, he tried everything, wanted to do everything just to be normal. You know, he talks about being in the military and, and sharing the stories of, of, his, of the military, not so much because he was bragging about how many people he had killed, but that, so people would understand what, what trauma is like for the soldiers. For him, it's about the soldiers. Without a doubt, the most dangerous life the media have told is that I somehow bo bo boasted about the number of people that I killed in Afghanistan, he says. He told the show's host uh, on the Colbert show. I would say that if I heard anyone else, anybody boasting about that kind of thing, I would be angry, but it's a lie. And hopefully now the book is out. People also see it in context. It's really troubling and very disturbing that I, I can get away with it in some way, he says. But his, his revelation was to make it easier so people understand my whole goal and my attempt with sharing the detail is to reduce the number of suicides by soldiers. Asking about the relentless press coverage that forced Harry and his wife Meghan to leave the UK in 2020, Colbert posted the question. Colbert posted the question, do you think it was the intent to make her leave or to break her spirit so it would be easier to control? These people came from, if you read and listen to his words and her words, Meghan's words, they're in a terrible situation. It's bad enough to be a royal. It's bad enough to be a famous person. Oh, my gosh, everybody wants to be famous until they realize what the real cost is. 
the cost of fame is very difficult. It's a, it's a big, you pay a, a high price for not having your freedom. See, people talk about, <clears throat> you know, joining politics, being a politician, running for office. That means you're exposed. You're open. That means that you're, you're free, you're free game for those in media that want to make your life something that people will read about so they can sell more newspapers and expand their membership, their reader base. It's for entertainment. Listen, I'm in the media. I'm a broadcaster. We love to talk about things that people will stand up and go, wow, that's quite a story. I choose to do that and then turn that story into something positive to help others. But my colleagues, many of whom are newscasters and brilliant at it, their job is to report it and to share sides of the story with you. But that story is somebody's life often. And sometimes as broadcasters, as a media, we don't necessarily think about the impact it has on them. We'd like to do a better job of it, but you know what? Our job is to report what we see, what we hear, and what we find out so that the positive information that can come from it or the message that can come from it can make a difference or the information can be shared in some way just so that people can become informed. But in Harry's life, from the time he was young, he was 12 years old when his mother was killed, I believe. And from that point, he was told to kind of, you know, suck it up, just live with it. You know, he didn't really get a lot of help around the trauma itself. It's like a death cult, he said, living there amongst the royals. We're talking about his memoir, Spare. It's the most recent piece that's out. <clears throat> Talks about, you know, what's, you know, being able to, talking about anglophilia as a medical condition. It's been difficult to shed. It's not like ripping off a Band-Aid, Right. This was the true value. He said the picturesque here is usually low, low birth with no, no ready employment, right? But he, 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 is, he is just another, underneath it all, royal or not. He's a kid who lost his mother at 12, and his mother was hounded by speeding paparazzi who photographed her as she lay dying in a coffin-like Paris tunnel. King Charles, possibly the most social inad- socially inadequate royal of them all, patted his youngest boy on the knee after walking him up to him and telling him that mummy was quite badly injured, he said, and she didn't make it. Not a hug, not a chance to cry, not a consoling word. That impact would, ha- that impact would be devastating to any child, royal or not. All the money in the world, all the luxury in the world, all the limousines and caregivers and, and, and chauffeurs and maids and cooks in the world. Don't make that go away. And you know what? He found himself his true love. He found someone he could connect with. He had a very difficult time finding romance in the regular type relationships that I guess he was being set up for or motivated to be a part of. Then he found Megan and she understood and she cared. She made a difference in his life. She gave him a chance to be him, to cry, to be who he needed to be. She is and was his everything, his salvation his ability to crawl out of this horrible situation and find some normalcy in his life and have a life and make children. And he realized that being part of that royal family on a continuous basis meant that all of that was at risk. And he did what any smart person would do. He ran for the hills to protect himself and his children and his wife so that they had a chance at some kind of life. So while we, while we judge the information that we hear and read about and find out about, when we judge all that, Make sure you look at it from the perspective of a 12-year-old kid that heard about his mother lying in a tunnel after being chased by paparazzi and now finding in his life many years later that the paparazzi are now causing his wife to have sleepless nights and feel insecure. I would do the same thing. I think you would too. Run for the hills as fast as you can and hug those that are closest to us to make them feel safe. We're talking uh, right now about... uh, uh, training your mind for success. It's part of our champions um, series that we do uh, every week at this time. It's the first segment of the second hour uh, coming in, depending on where you are in the country um, in our second hour of uh, broadcast. So if you catching up where we were, we started by talking about having a clear goal. Then the second show we did, uh, we talked about aiming high the third show. We talked about making a plan. Last show we talked about cultivating your motivation. And today we're going to talk about training for hard, and training for a long time, training your mind to be successful. It's, it's like anything else, right? Your mind is a muscle, requires you to train it, 
and make it work for you. You know, what we do in my house is uh, wife and I play Scrabble on a regular basis. Um, and uh, from that, we get a chance to make our brains work, right? We're, look, we're, we're looking at words. We're trying to remember things. We're spelling things. We're training our minds. I mean, I wouldn't exactly say to become a champion, but certainly to, you know, to keep everything sharp and, and uh, working going into the future, right? But how do you train yourself? How do you, how do you do that? How do you train yourself to be successful? Well, it starts number one by practicing self-compassion, right? It's our inner dialogue. It starts with how we talk to ourselves. What we call that is positive self-talk, right? When you're talking about positive self-talk, you're talking about being mindful of being overly self-critical. So make sure that, you know, you're giving yourself a break, that you're being compassionate, giving yourself the opportunity to reset, right? I mean, we make mistakes. We make, you know, we missteps, if you will. Uh, you know, some people call it a failure. It's not really a failure. It's just an opportunity to do better. So training your mind, teaching yourself to be more self-compassionate, understanding that, you know, we learn from error. So when we make a mistake, it's a chance to teach ourselves how to be better. It's a great opportunity for growth as, an as opposed to an opportunity to put yourself down. Second thing is to center yourself, right? So your own mind is a sacred enclosure into which nothing harmful can enter except by your permission. Learning how to center yourself is one of the most important ways to train your mind for success. One, one of the ways to, to center yourself is through mindfulness, concentrating on living in the moment, living in the day. And make sure that you're not, while you're centering yourself, you're clearing away all the warning signs, making sure that you're getting rid of all those negative thoughts that you have in your head or feeling nervous or stuck or overwhelmed about what the future might be for you. Being easily distracted and unable to focus. These are the things you have to take care of and make sure that you're, you're, you're focusing on a more positive approach. You know, if you're checking your phone compulsively throughout the day, it's probably not a good practice. So all that nervous energy, you can turn into a positive concentration. It's a way to clear yourself, conscious breathing, breathing your center, learning how to breathe yourself through the things that bother you things that, that are that are causing you to feel uncomfortable about yourself. And you have to practice a level of awareness. This is an exercise aimed to generate awareness of all of your sensory experiences so that you can feel more grounded in your body. We tell people that are going through a panic attack, when I'm going through a panic attack, one of the things I do to root myself is I feel my feet on the ground. I feel my hands on my chair. I sit back. I'm in reality. I'm touching something tangible. I focus on a picture in my room, in my office that's specific to help me focus. It's a, it's a piece of art that's specifically designed to help me focus. And I get myself back to where I need to be if I'm feeling anxious. I can do it in about five or 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes a little longer. And if I don't catch myself and it gets out of hand, it's much harder to bring myself back. So it's like a, a pain in your tummy. You know, as soon as you get a pain in your tummy, people, you know, tend to go get a hot drink or take an antacid or try to use the bathroom or, you know, put a heating pad on their belly. It's easy to pay attention to the physical things in our life. It's much more difficult to do that when it's going on in our head. And of course, if you're able to meditate, meditation is another great way to ground yourself. So feeling your sense of reality, putting yourself where you belong, positive, positive self-talk is one of the ways to train your mind. You also have to visualize another thing that's very important in training your mind to be a champion is to visualize the success, the, the success, excuse me. That activates your creative subconscious, which will start generating creative ideas to help you attain your goal. It starts to program your brain to be more readily for, to be more readily able to perceive and recognize the resources that you'll need to achieve your dreams, and it actually activates the laws of attraction, thereby drawing into your life the people, the supports, and the circumstances that will help you get to your goals. It'll help you realize your successes, and it also builds your internal motivation to take the necessary action to reach your dreams. Visualizing that success is so critical to training yourself to be a champion. Learn something new. Try something different on a physical level, on a psychological level, right? Doing something new gives us the ability to train ourselves to do new things, to try things that we haven't done before. It gives us a chance to, you know, build our confidence, build our ability to be resilient when things take a little bit longer. Being able to fight back internally, that argument between you and you when things aren't going as easily or as nicely as you'd like them to. And you always have to look for that silver lining, right? Try to find that sunshine in a dark cloud, if you will. That's the essence of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. 
Charlie, Bob, Tom, CBT. That's the part, that's the whole essence of cognitive behavioral therapy is being able to see the glass is half full all the time. So being mindful of staying in the day and seeing your life through rose-colored glasses, as we would say, finding the sunshine in a dark place. That's one of the ways that we train ourselves to become a champion. We don't let negative distractions overcome us. You know, if you look at athletes that push through the training and the and the this the excruciating uh, energy and pain that it takes to work through a physical exercise if you're a professional athlete or the amount of training it's required if you're a performer and the amount of, of, of uh, you know, uh, rehearsal you have to go through. Sometimes it's not so easy to do. We push ourselves through. Champions push themselves through. They manage to get through the other side successfully by not letting the negative side push them down. Positive self-talk, living in the moment, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses sunshine when it's a little cloudy and what's self-discipline that's something we need right what's that all about how do you work on that why do you work on that because self-discipline is so important it's it's what allows you to believe in you it's the ability to push yourself forward stay motivated and take action regardless of how you're feeling okay i feel crummy today i can't tell you how many days my friends i can't i get out of bed on days where i just don't feel like i want to once i get there i'm good but getting there sometimes is more work than you expect, more, more work than you sign yourself up for sometimes. And it's so important to work on your self-discipline because it's so much so useful in all the areas of our life. You know, when you stick to something, even though you want to pick up and leave and you come out the other side, it's a great feeling of accomplishment. Whether you enjoyed the experience or not is less relevant. The fact that you got through it and came out the other side. So how do you develop that kind of self-discipline? It's like a muscle. The more you work on developing it and using it, the stronger it becomes. Just like, you know, lifting weights, if you ever do that, lift weights. And, you know, you, if you do barbells or anything like that, you, after a while, you notice that your muscles get pumped and feel bigger and f- you feel a little bit stronger. And the more you do that, even when you don't feel like it, the stronger you feel and the better you look. So it's important to start out with goals that aren't too disciplined, too, aren't too ambitious, excuse me, to build that discipline. Find your motivation. We talked about that before how to find the motivation, making sure that you understand that this is something you want to do and that's what's driving you. Making sure that things that are in your way are able to be overcome. The obstacles that you anticipate, you push through them. Identify your obstacles. Replace old habits. Monitor your successes and your progress. These are ways to train yourself to act like a champion, to feel like a champion, and to be a champion. Living in the moment, rose-colored glasses, feeling good about yourself and saying nice things to yourself under your breath. The good person talking, the one on your shoulder that you can listen to that makes you feel good about who you are. You know, uh, there's all kinds of days out there, right? Like there's Black Friday. And then later on, we have Cyber Monday, which is, you know, they're great shopping experiences. And then today we're talking about something coming up here called Blue Monday. Uh, which is the third Monday of every, of the month of January. Uh, and I have a guest who's going to join me here just shortly, and we're going to talk about it together. But, you know, I, I maybe I have some issues, and I'm going to take that up uh, with her. I have some issues with calling something negative, giving it a tag like a bad guy. You know, when I used to do stories about, you know, crime and that kind of stuff and gang violence and and people doing bad things, we, we kept the names of the perpetrators out so they didn't get their day in court or their their day in, 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 the, in the limelight, so to speak. Um, but now, you know, people are celebrating uh, you know, the holidays, the solid holidays are over. So it appears that this third Monday, this January 16th becomes something called Blue Monday, which is really, you know, a sad day. According to Center for Addiction and Mental Health, one in five Canadians experience mental health illness in any given year. An estimated two to three percent of Canadians are affected by seasonal affective disorder, which is known as SADS. And that's kind of when it's dark outside, you know, you get up in the morning, go to work, it's dark, you come home, it's dark, it's just yucky, right? Just yucky weather hard to get motivated hard to feel good you really miss that sunshine and warmth on your back so you know people get bogged down with new year's resolutions and so on and it's this blue monday so uh i think we're going to drill down and talk about it we've got some tips on how to get around blue monday uh my guest this evening i'm so happy to say is uh, paula allen she's a friend of the show uh she's a global leader and a senior vice president of research and total well-being at a great company called lifeworks uh paula welcome to the show happy new year and uh great to have you back 
Happy New Year to you too. And always a pleasure to be here. So Blue Monday, let's start with the fact that why do we give it a name? And when we give it a name, don't we sort of set ourselves up like a, almost like you're, you're going to put it in your calendar and expect it? You know what? Blue Monday actually has a fascinating history. Um, I, I don't know if anybody is 100% sure of how this came up, uh, but I do know that it was popularized uh, by a travel company, you know, basically uh, not for the purpose of reminding everybody that it's a gloomy point in time and a gloomy part of the year, but to motivate people to take action to, to help them feel less blue. To, to go on a trip or plan something else or do anything that would give you a little bit more control over a time when we might be feeling a little bit more lethargic. So I think your sentiment in terms of not just labeling it as a, a, an unpleasant day, uh, but doing what we can to, to make our day as good as it can be was the original intent. I, I think that's great. And I think if, if people spin it like that, it probably has a, a more positive, uh, uh, have more positive uptake in terms of people that are, you know, kind of look into it and see how it affects them. Uh, Paula, why, why the third Monday of January? I mean, you know, I don't, I know that you're not part of the sort of the creation of this, but is there a specific thinking around why it's the third Monday of January? Yeah, well, there were some calculations that look at things from a situational point of view that all seem to come together around that third, uh, third, third, third Monday in January. Uh, first of all, Monday itself doesn't have a great reputation in history, so that's 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 one thing, as opposed to Blue Tuesday or Wednesday. Right. Uh, the other is it is after the holidays, and it's it's there's a bit of an adrenaline drop after the holidays. We often are very tired. Sometimes we're making doing a lot of ag activity. Um, we're seeing people, we, we're sort of running on adrenaline and then it really wanes away. And the other side of the coin is very often people have, you know, very personal experiences over the holidays, you know, maybe family relationships are not what they want them to be or yeah. other types of things. So yeah. it can be a difficult uh, time. And we actually even see that in our EAP calls go up around this time of year. So you think, sort of blue Monday and dry January have anything to do with <laughs> each other. You know, I, I'm wondering if the third week of someone not drinking when they're used to drinking more often, uh, you know, you can tend to be depressed. I'm sure. Is, is there any correlation or did I just make that up? Well, I hadn't heard about the correlation with, with dry January, but you know, in, in addition to the post holiday slump, you know, there, it is a period of time where people's bills are coming in. And, you know, that could be painful for some individuals. And we know that, you know, your financial, you know, your financial cushion, and if you have the cushion depleted, or if you feel in debt, that impacts your well-being. But the other point is really something important that you touched on as well, which is, it's, it's, it's the time of year. And in, yeah. in this part of the world, we have less light, we are, are less likely to be active uh, and go out it's kind of cold and you know you're cocooning and it's 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 a period of time where it's very easy to feel tired to feel lethargic and for some people it does it is the time of year that we're triggering seasonal affective disorder so let's let's drill on that and look at look at that a little bit seasonal affect disorder so these are people that say they do horrible in the winter time and it's it's some people say it's a lack of vitamin d or lack of the the sun resource um plus the darkness you know in terms of the hours of darkness the cold um is it a you know i, I guess i could ask myself the question i know it's a real uh, a legitimate um I guess, diagnosis, if you will. Uh, but do people sort of play into it because they, you know, they, it, it's a good excuse why, you know, maybe you don't get the things done you wanted to get done, or you're, you know, you're not making it, you know, the first three weeks into this, you're not meeting any of your expectations from your resolutions. Like, is it, is it a, an excuse for real? Or, um, you know, how do you know when someone's really suffering with sad and someone who's kind of using it as a, well, it's so dark outside, I don't want to go anywhere. Well, my, my big concern about SAD is that people do underdiagnose it. You know, they, they, they actually explain away the fact that they're not feeling uh, the way they normally would, you know, because it's the season, because something else, they don't realize that it's a clinical disorder, so they don't get help. Right. So this is this is the saddest part, <laughs> the saddest part of, of sad, because it is cyclical and people, you know, do feel differently, you know, when the when the days are longer, when the when the weather is a little bit differently. It, it's, it's not always easy to pick up 
that this isn't just because of winter or just isn't because the situation that you're in right now at that point in time is, is unpleasant, but a true disorder where your brain functions differently based on what's happening environmentally. That's what SAD is. And it's definitely a clinical disorder. So uh, I'm hoping that as a result of these conversations, people might look at the patterns, look at the last couple of years, you know, when they're feeling uh, uh, they're down, you know, and realize that depression comes in many, 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 many presentations, including the cyclical uh, presentation. You know, it's interesting that uh, in the uh, the two 2022 World Happiest Report, Finland, for the fifth time in uh, in a row, as the world's happiest country, uh, and they get snow. It's snow. They get it's cold. Uh, but they're you know they're much more focused on uh, talking about fitness and nutrition and using you know sort of embracing uh, the winter. Um, real quick here, just before we go to break, I don't mean to cut you off, but real quick here before we go to break, the fact that the weather's a little nicer. Uh, lately here in, in Toronto uh, and, and seems to be across the country, the weather's a little, a little softer, um, not so harsh uh, as it normally, or it could be in the past. You think that might just soften the effect of, uh, of this um, blue Monday? In, in one respect, it might, because I, I do think that, you know, and, and we've said, we've spoken about this before, Johan, about how important it is for people to, you know, have a variety of experiences in their day and in their life and, and to, to reach out and connect to other people. And when the weather is a little bit better, we're more likely to go out. We're more likely to have that variety of experiences. We're more likely to have social contact. Uh, but you know, the, the temperature itself is not believed to be the big thing with SAD. It's really light. And unfortunately, we can't control that. Like the sun rises late, the sun sets early, and that's what yeah. happens in this time of, the, uh, of year. Uh, but the good thing is, there are ways to treat it. There are ways to mitigate this situation. And that's why it's so important for people not to just say, okay, well, I'm having the winter blues and that's just, uh, that's just what it is, but to, but to seek help. Why would you want to give up the quality of your life for, you know, six or months of the year? I'm with my friend Paula Allen, global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. We're talking about blue Monday, that third Monday in January when People apparently all walk around feeling sad. And for those that really have that, you know, season effect disorder, sad, um, you know, we're talking about how to get some help. And some of the tips we've got here are simple things like we talk about often in the mental health uh, uh, world, uh, Paula, like things like fitness and nutrition and, you know, getting outside. And when I read the article about why Finland is so successful at being happy in the winter, one of the things they say, Paula, is embrace the weather, embrace the darkness and use it in a way that's good for you. Um, yeah. How would you do that? Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's really one of these situations where you're not hiding. <laughs> you're not you're not <laughs> making your life any smaller. You know, you're looking at what you can do and and, and really connecting with others and, and, and making sure that you're maximizing every day of your life to the extent that you can. You know, what often happens when people are feeling blue or or depressed, their world gets a lot smaller. They stay to themselves. uh, They do less. They have less less opportunity to have a sense of achievement. They have less opportunity to get the endorphins that you have from um, physical, physical activity. You know, what I would suggest is try to do something new. You know, try to do something different. If it's going for a walk, if it's going out, and it's Toronto right now, where where I am, has a lot of um, restaurants that are open in patio season and winter because we've we've all got those heats that that heat. Anything different that you can do that makes you feel good is something that you should do, not just retreating. That's excellent. This is excellent advice. You know, there's something else. Uh, somebody said, uh, actually, a friend of mine told me he's got something called a sad lamp, uh, which is a light therapy lamp that you can buy. He got his at uh, one of the local uh, shopping, uh, you know, drugstore type chains um, and not horribly expensive. And he says it helps a lot. He uses that sad lamp when he's at home. He uses it in the morning when he gets up sort of by his bed for the first five or 10 minutes. Um, snake oil solution or for real, do you think? No, absolutely for real. But 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 here's the deal: you have to make sure that you get one that is is really uh, meant to sort of help people with that. 
right. you know, the kind of light box. So, you know, any kind of light is going to be helpful, particularly natural light. So, you know, if you're in an office, you know, moving, if you can, to a seat near a window, you know, trying to get as much light as possible, not having the curtains down uh, in your in your home. Uh, but in terms of the lamps, there are very special lamps that are designed to help people with sad. And there's a there's a particular protocol for using them. So I would uh, reach out to a healthcare professional for their advice on the best one for you, as opposed to maybe spending your money where you don't need to, because it's not the right thing. See, that's why we have you on the show, because you're just so darn good at it. Um, you're the, the part of the work that you guys do there at LifeWorks uh, that you folks do. Um, you, you deal a lot with businesses and employees and, and that kind of stuff as part of your uh, big part of the practice, I believe. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think so. Um, and what are you, what are employers doing? What are you telling employers, uh, employees, like what kind of work's being done inside the actual workplace, so to speak, um, around the anticipation of the months where people are affected by this? Uh, are employers kind of on standby where they can let people, you know, take their time off? What goes on behind the the office doors? I think overall, you know, the, the the best employers really look at how they can help their people 365 days a year and also recognize that anything in terms of a mental health concern presents itself in a wide variety of ways. So why this is so important for SAD is that there needs to be the recognition that somebody, you know, somebody who has um, cyclical depression um, still has depression. If an employee comes and they're making a request, for example, to sit near a window, if they're making a, a request to move to another area because it is it's just too insular in the um in the in the in, in the office, uh, or if they want to submit, you know, and want directions on on how to actually reach out and get reimbursement through a benefit plan for one of these. Um, uh, natural light mimicking lamps that that's used for sad, you know, these are all things that employers can do to support as a pet, as opposed to looking kind of suspicious because it doesn't, you know, why do you need this now? Mm -hmm. You know, why do you, why are you okay now? And a few months ago, you were you're not okay now. And a few months ago, you were great. Like it's, it's not about the, the employer diagnosing it's the employer about having the dialogue and openness about helping the employee with what they need. If there is a modification of work, if there's other types of support, focus on helping the employee with what they need at that moment, as opposed to sort of questioning whether this is this is something that's appropriate or, 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 or not. You know, there's there's processes for doing that if you need to, but generally speaking, these are not expensive or or huge kind of modifications that people people need. And we want to help people keep working, keeping active, keeping engaged, but with perhaps a little extra support. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's kind of hard to see, but they seem to be okay in April, but why aren't they okay in December? And, you know, it, it, people start asking questions, maybe too much booze over the holidays or like there's we self, you know, our, our colleagues, our, our peers tend to so you know, tend to diagnose us in, in absentia without, without, without us actually being there as, as part of the process. Uh, Paula, people that are, um, that are experiencing, um, you know, a mood disorder through these months. Um, it, are we finding that it's that, that there's more people today uh, as a result of the damage done during the pandemic years uh, or are, have people kind of gotten a little bit tougher, more used to it, perhaps uh, managing their stuff a little easier now that they're used to being locked down in or out for the last couple of years, has it helped or is it hindered? Well, it depends on the individual, but as a society is actually hindered, um, you know, we've been through a lot of strain over the last couple of years. So, you know, some people's lives were completely disrupted at the beginning of the pandemic. It was super, super stressful and difficult and, and, and terrifying. And, you know, a lot of people moved into a much higher risk category in terms of, of their mental health. Uh, and you don't just flip out of that easily unless you have some really solid support. So, you know, we, we've, we've seen that, you know, people have moved, many people have moved into a higher risk category. We've seen that many people have started, you know, uh, um, behaviors that they, that, that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise do. So we, uh, high risk drinking behavior has increased and not really decreased that much since. Yeah. 
Um, we've seen uh, evidence that people are more sensitive to stress and more prone to cynicism and arguing and you know all of that. So I, I don't think it's helped us. Um, I think the one thing that has helped us is that we are more aware of mental health as an issue that is a driver of virtually everything. So it's a driver of our physical health. It's a driver of the quality of our life. It's a driver of our work productivity, a driver of our relationships, a drive of our business success. Like it's so important. Like it's at the top of the chain in terms of things that we need to focus on in order to live the lives that we can live and should live. So uh, last question here, because we're kind of running out of time. Uh, personal one, if you don't mind. And if you do, you can tell me I'll move on to something else. <laughs> um, how do you get through the yucky winters? Uh, I had to get up the other day early in the morning and go somewhere and came back late at night. I didn't have a good time. Uh, how do you get through the kind of crappy, crappy months here of darkness and cold and damp and yuck? Well, full transparency, I am not a winter person in any respect. Oh, I good. Just- Buys the cold. I don't ski, or and trust me, <laughs> if you'd ever seen me attempt, you would know. You'd know why. And I love the light. The best thing for me about summer is the fact that it's yeah. light at nine o'clock at night. So all of these things are not a pleasant time for me. But I, I, I know what does work for me. Like I know that getting as much light as possible. So I'm constantly near the windows. The, the screens are always up, no curtains. Like it's, it's, I, I really try to make sure that I, you know, even though there's less light, I get as much of it as, as possible. Um, but I also know what makes me feel good. Like there are some indoor activities that are fun. Like I love movies. I see more of them in the winter than I do of the summer because it gives me a reason to get out of my house and cool. do something that I uh, that I enjoy. Um, I, a number of years ago, I took up dancing, which is a beautiful indoor sport. And when you're doing <laughs> that, you're not thinking about what the weather's like outside. You're building up your endorphins quite beautifully. Amazing. So you, you have to sort of invest in things that balance out the negative of things that you might be experiencing. Paula Allen, always an excellent guest and just a cool person and a global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. We'll have you back on again for sure. So a couple of things real quickly. How do you get through this dark stuff, this, uh, this difficult Monday? Real quick tips here. Fitness, nutrition, sleep, maybe look into this light thing, keep your blinds open, reach out, don't be alone, talk to your friends, include the people in your life that are good to you, and uh, you can get through this Monday and every other day that's a little bit blue. 